0: This morning's reading is taken from Revelation chapter three, verses fourteen through twenty-two. To the church of Laodicea, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works; you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot! as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: Let's pray together. Father, the the prayer of our hearts this morning is uh, the same prayer that uh, Emily and Alyssa just sang, Father, that your Spirit would uh, fall fresh on us, Father. And we we pray it because we, we know that we need it. We need your spirit not just present to be present in our worship and as we look at your word, but we just need your spirit to be present in our lives, uh, speaking truth and breathing love and life into our lives. So, Father, we pray for your spirit to come, guide our hearts and our affections. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, <clears throat> if you know us at all, you know that we, um, we live in a community that that is really right across the street from here. And uh, in our community, the houses are uh, relatively close uh, to one another. If you live in the city, uh, you probably live in a house that's relatively close to someone else as well. Uh, The first house my wife and I lived in was uh, a townhome. So we were even closer to our neighbors than we are even now. But the thing about living in close proximity to neighbors is that you can't totally hide from them And they can't totally hide from you either. Sometimes you'll be in your house or out in your front lawn and you'll overhear something and you'll get a window into what is happening in that home. And what's uh, even more frightening is that you wonder what sort of window they are seeing into your home and into your life as well. My wife has gotten uh, really good at reminding me of this from time to time. And there are times where my kids do something that they shouldn't, and I'm ready to kind of lose it or scream or go nuclear. And she very quietly and sweetly comes along and reminds me, sweetie, don't forget, the windows are open. She's trying to protect me from from all that. Because the reality is, or the truth is, that that all of us, if we are honest with ourselves, all of us have uh, dirty laundry. All of us have have parts of ourselves that we would just rather not broadcast to all our neighbors or to our entire neighborhood. And churches, because they are made up of messy people like you and I, churches have dirty laundry too. Every church has its own mess to itself. Even if you're here this morning just checking out church for uh, the very first time, wondering what it is all about, you need to know from the very beginning that everything in churches is not perfect. That very often our behavior doesn't match the things that we say. We are hypocritical. If you watch our lives, you'll discover that. We are a messy community. Every church is a messy community because it is full of messy people. And that's what makes these first few chapters in the book of Revelation so intriguing for us to read. Because they give us a window or a look into the mess of other churches. And as we are able to look into the mess, both the strengths and weaknesses of other churches, as we are able to do that, it becomes really instructive for us on what this life of faith is really all about. And it's also instructive to show us how a community of faith ought to live as people gathering together in an urban center set to worship and exemplify the name of our Lord in our context. If you've been with us over the past couple weeks, you've seen uh, that each letter shows us something unique about what the church is supposed to be. We've seen that love has to be an essential characteristic of the church and that there's a great danger for the church to reduce itself into just a dry sort of intellectualism. We've seen that persecution is a part of what it means to be a church. We saw that in the letter to Smyrna. We saw that what we believe, the the element or the essential nature of what we believe is actually really very important. The truth is important because there's a a general temptation or a general drift that is away from the truth. That's why we need to center ourselves on the truth of the gospel. But it isn't just important to to center ourselves on that truth, but we've seen throughout the letters that it's also important to to be able to speak truth into the lives of one another. We need each other to speak into our lives and to expose our blind spots. We've seen that that authenticity has to be a a defining characteristic of the church. And we saw last week in the letter to Philadelphia that humility or weakness— has to be a defining mark of the true, of the church as well this morning in in the letter to Laodicea we see something new we see something different and we see that passionate zeal has to be a central mark of the church. Passionate zeal has to be central to the church in some ways the the best and 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 most convincing or convicting of all the letters is really saved for the very last one. Some have read this letter and they've argued that that this letter is really the most applicable of all letters to our cultural moment or our specific landscape of church in our culture. But what's frightening about that is that, ironically, it is the most severe of all the letters. It is intense. It is very, very severe. It contains really no encouragement whatsoever, which we've seen encouragement in others' letters. This one contains no encouragement whatsoever, just very stern correction. And as we read it, we learn, like I said before, a few things about what it means to live a life of faith And we learn a few things about what it means to be a community of faith. And the first and maybe most profound thing that we see in this letter is that prosperity and self-sufficiency can often lead to apathy. Prosperity and self-sufficiency can often lead to apathy. It says this in verse 15. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What we know about uh, Laodicea is that the, the city, this ancient city of Laodicea, was a very wealthy and it was a very prosperous city. It was known to be one of the richest commercial uh, centers in all of uh, the ancient world, especially in the region, region of Asia. And it was known really for three specific things. It was known for its unique wool. It had a, a very vibrant textile uh, market to it. It was known to be a, a very robust banking center, uh, so it had lots of money within uh, its city walls. And it was also known to be a city that was very prominent in the medical field, too. It was known to uh, be very industrious or innovative in the medical field as well. But not only was it prosperous, it was a city that was known to be a very, very self-sufficient. And it prided itself on its self-sufficiency. History tells us that in eighty sixty six, another massive earthquake came and destroyed almost the entire city of Laodicea. Now, often in ancient cities, when this would happen, they would have to rely on outside resources in order to rebuild the city, but not Laodicea. They were self-sufficient. They were prosperous. They knew how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and fix their own problems. So they prided themselves on the fact that they didn't need any other help. They were able to rebuild themselves on their very own. So in very many ways, Laodicea was a wonderful city. It was a great place to live, but it did have one really big problem. And it's one really big problem is that it had no source of water whatsoever. So what it had to do is it had to find water from an outside source. So what it did is it would find its cold water Uh, From the city of Colossae, which was uh, 10 miles away, Colossae sat on a a cold mountain stream, so it would have to get its cold water from Colossae. It would have to get its warm water from another city that was six miles away, called Hierapolis. And that city sat on a, a warm, medicinal, hot spring. So in order for the city of Laodicea to get water, it had to create these huge pipelines or ancient aqueduct system. And the water would, the cold water would have to travel for 10 miles before it would get to Laodicea. And the hot water would have to travel 6 miles before it could get to Laodicea. And you can imagine that in the process of all that traveling, the water would lose its temperature. So in Laodicea, if you were to drink the water, you would know it was going to be disgusting. It was going to be lukewarm. It was not going to be good or even useful for all the things that you would like it to be. So what Jesus does is he plays on this as a metaphor. And he tells the church at Laodicea that just like that water, Jesus himself is disgusted with their faith. He is disgusted with their faith. In all their prosperity and self-sufficiency, they had become complacent and apathetic about their faith. Their faith had become skin deep. It had become flabby. It had become anemic. And because of that, Jesus was disgusted with the nature of their faith. You know, we might not be a whole lot like Laodicea, but we are like them in in many ways that we may not realize. We might not feel like it day to day, but most of us live in a largely prosperous context. We fit into the prosperous or the self-sufficient category, especially when we compare ourselves to most of human history, and even when we compare ourselves to other contexts, even in our world today. We live in a country that's known for incredible wealth, and it also prides itself on being incredibly self-sufficient. And we, in the American spirit, pride ourselves on being self-sufficient and not needing other people. We can do it really ourselves. And in some ways, all those things are, are things that we ought to be thankful for. But we have to recognize that even though we, uh, we can experience those things and be thankful for them, we have to recognize that sometimes there are inherent dangers to them as well. Madeline Levine, who uh, was a, a very popular uh, clinical psychologist and author, uh, wrote a really important book uh, in 2006 that was called this. It's called The Price of Privilege. How parental pressure and material advantage are creating a generation of disconnected and unhappy kids. And in her book, what she does is she talks about this thing called uh, the paradox of privilege or the paradox of prosperity. She says this, America's newly identified at-risk group is pre-teens and teens from affluent, well-educated families. In spite of their economic and social advantages, they experience among the highest rates of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, somatic complaints, and unhappiness of any group of children in this country. Now, it's a really interesting book, and you may not agree with all her conclusions about how to address this problem of privilege or this paradox of privilege. But what she does do a good job of is highlighting some of the dangers that can come to those of us that live in pretty prosperous contexts. And the reality is, is that there are inherent dangers to our spirituality as well. There are inherent dangers to our spiritual lives as well when we live in a context that's very similar to this church of Laodicea. We see in this letter to this church something that is very similar to what we saw in the letter to the church at Sardis. And that is that both churches had become incredibly distracted from their true and ultimate condition before God. They had been distracted of their great need as they stand before a living God. And that's why Jesus says to them in verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the church at Laodicea had lost touch of their profound And great need for Jesus Christ. They had become lost in their spiritual complacency. They had become lost in their own self-sufficiency. And a byproduct of the fact that they had become out of touch of their need. A byproduct of that was that they had lost their passion or zeal for Christ. They had become indifferent about their faith. And what it tells us is that once we lose our sense of just how much we need Jesus for our lives, the next thing that often goes is our passion and our zeal and our energy for Christ. And it leads us to the next thing that we see from this letter. It shows us that passion must be a mark of the church. Passion must be a mark of the church. It says this in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Repent. I don't know if you paid attention to uh, the news this week, but uh, uh, one, a famous musician, BB King, the famous uh, blues musician, died. I think it was uh, I think it was last week. Uh, he passed away. And if you were listening to the radio at all, what they tended to do is play his his most famous song over and over on the radio in order to honor him. And his most famous song was a song called The Thrill is Gone, which is a song all about uh, a man who was in a relationship with a woman and all of a sudden the thrill had been gone. He had lost the passion in his relationship. And B.B. King himself was was no stranger uh, to this idea of passion. He wrote a lot about it. But if you know anything about his life, you know uh, that his most passionate relationship uh, the woman he was most committed to in his life was, uh, was named Lucille. And that was the name that he had given to his jazz guitar. And the story of how Lucille got her name is a great story. I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but B.B. Uh, King tells a story about one day he was uh, very young in his uh, mu- musical career, and he was playing in a blues bar. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, two men in the blues bar that were just drinking in the, at the bar uh, started to get into a fight. And they got into a fight that was so intense. I don't know how it all happened, but somehow they set the bar on fire because, because they were fighting so intensely. They set the bar on fire and all of a sudden the place gets engulfed in flames and everybody starts running out of the bar for safety, including B.B. King. So B.B. King runs out of the bar, and then he realizes, to his horror, that he left his guitar in the blues bar. So what does he do? What any good musician would do, he runs back into this bar to get his guitar. And as he runs in, the bar is kind of uh, burning to the ground. It's, the ceiling is caving in and doing all this sort of stuff. He manages to get in, and he grabs his guitar, and then he, he gets out safely, keeping his guitar safe. Well, as he comes to find out about the story, he learns that the reason this fire was set was because of these two men that got in a fight at the bar. Now, what were the men fighting over? They were fighting over a woman, of course. What was the name of the woman? Her name was Lucille. And ever since then, B.B. King named his guitar Lucille. Now, what is the thing that would cause a man to run into a burning bar to save his guitar? And the only answer is passion. What would cause two men to fight to such an extreme that they ended up setting a bar on fire? And the answer is the same. The answer is passion for a woman named Lucille in this moment. You see the church operating out of a profound sense of its need for Christ ought to be a place of great passion for God. And the reality is, the more that we recognize our great need for Christ, the more it will translate into passion for him. Often when we talk about passion, we think of cheesy romance novels or uh, the latest Nicholas Sparks book that's that's been made into some sort of uh, romantic movie, But when the Bible talks about passion and when it talks about zeal, it talks about it in a much fuller sense than we realize. Because when the Bible talks about passion and zeal, uh, it talks about it in terms of wholeheartedness, in terms of wholeheartedness. And what I mean by that is this. One of the major components of the entire scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is what theologians call the law. And uh, the law really is the sum total of all that God in his righteousness and his justice demands of us, demands of his creation. And the law really does two things for us. One, it tells us our profound need for Jesus Christ. Because when we look at the law, when we look at all these commands, and if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we can't live up to it that we need Jesus to profoundly rescue us from the law that condemns us because of how much we fall short. But the law does something else for us too. It shows us God's will for how he wants us to live. It shows us his will for how he wants his people to live a life of obedience to him. And when Jesus was was here on this earth, he chose to sum up the law really in one statement. All those commands, all those, uh, those statutes and precepts that are in all the scriptures are all summed up in one law and command that Jesus gives us. And that is this, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, And with all of your strength. In essence, the law tells us that to honor God, we need to love Him purely above all other things. You see, the church at Laodicea had lost sense of its great need, but in the process, its heart had become divided. It began to love its own prosperity. It began to love its own self-sufficiency, and it became complacent, allowing all those things to ultimately divide its heart and to lead it away from Christ. So what Christ does is he calls them to repent, to re-recognize their great need for Jesus Christ, and in the process to rediscover its passion through single-minded, devoted devotedness, and love for Jesus Christ. That is what it means to follow him, to single-mindedly be devoted in our love to Jesus Christ. But we also see from this letter something else, and we see it really profoundly in this letter. We really see it in all the letters, but we see it uh, very intensely in this letter, and that is that God disciplines Those whom he loves, God disciplines those whom he loves. Look at verse 19 for those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Uh, If you know us at all, you know that that we don't come from a perfect family. Believe it or not, there are times where we have to discipline our kids. In fact, it seems some days that's all that we do in our house, but it's something that we have to do in our house. And we've gotten into a practice uh, when we have to discipline our kids. Often we will say at the end of the discipline uh, to one of our kids, now, why does mom and dad punish you? Why do they discipline you? And our kids very grudgingly say to us, because you love us, you discipline us, right? But that's a practice that we want to keep engaging in them because we believe that it's important for them to understand that discipline is best when it comes in the context of love. Ellie Wiesel once wrote that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is actually indifference. And if you learn anything from these seven letters, you learn that God is not indifferent when it comes to his children, he's not indifferent when it comes to his people. And this letter shows us that more than all the others, because it is the most severe of all of them. Because he says to the Laodiceans, he says to them, you know how disgusting that water is in your city? He says, I am just as disgusted by the character of your faith. I'm disgusted by how I view your faith right now in your context. You see, the reality is that that God, that Jesus is is jealous of our affections. It's a it's a righteous jealousy, but it is a jealousy nonetheless. If you're married here, you don't want to share the uh, affections of your spouse with another person. And the same is true when it comes to our relationship with God. He is jealous about our affections. He doesn't want to share the affections of his people with other spiritual lovers that are out there. He doesn't want our affection for him to be divided. So he disciplines us within the context of love. He disciplines those he loves. He refines us so our love for him is more and more pure. But it leads us to our very last point here this morning, and that is that, yes, he disciplines those that he loves, but also his discipline is always his discipline is always seasoned by grace. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What's so beautiful about this letter is how the tone shifts. You see, it starts out with an incredibly severe and stern rebuke. But it's almost as if on a dime, the tone of this letter shifts to one of tender, intimate love. Affection. You see, God just doesn't discipline us for discipline's sake. He disciplines us because he wants to restore the broken relationship that we so often cause. And with a sort of, of gracious and, and beautiful hospitality, he reminds us that Christ stands ready at the door to open the door for us. He invites us to sit and be with Him in intimacy of relationship. He invites us to have our spiritual nakedness clothed by Him. He invites us to have our spiritual blindness cured by Him. He invites us to have our spiritual poverty met by Him. And what the gospel tells us is that through His life and death and resurrection, the door to a relationship with him has been opened. And when that door opens, we experience the forgiveness that our sins so desperately need. And ultimately, we are welcomed at the table of a father who loves us desperately. We are welcomed at that table, not because we are passionate, not because we are wholehearted, but because Christ was passionate and wholehearted in our place. If you look at the gospel story, you have to ask yourself this question. What was the thing that that motivated Christ to do all the things that he did on our behalf? What motivated him to to give that ultimate gift to sacrifice himself for us? What motivated him to allow himself to be arrested and stretched out and executed on a cross? And the only answer comes down to this the thing that motivated him to do all those things was passion. It was single-hearted, single-minded obedience to God the Father and single-minded devotion and passion and love for you and I. There is no greater love than this, and that one man passionately lays down his life for his friends. Friends, don't let your prosperity and your self-sufficiency distract you from your ultimate true condition. Instead, recognize the true state of your souls and knock on the door that Jesus has opened for you. Because Jesus stands there ready to be with you, to love you, to bind up your brokenheartedness, and to tenderly enter into a relationship with you. Let's pray.